Okay, welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Diane Finley, and uh, you can find her intro in the previous episode or previous part of the segment of the podcast. We're, we're enjoying our chat so much that uh, we're, we're probably creating two hours worth of, of uh, conversation here. Whereas initially the idea was let's talk sports psych. And then the first hour we talked about all these different kinds of things uh, about, uh, you know, careers in psychology, pursuing grad school, all these kinds of things that I th- hopefully it's good advice based on our, both of our experiences for, for, young students today. All right. So let's talk about your interest in sport psychology, okay. how you got into it. And then we'll dive deep into just what is this field? What is this field about? And, and what, what do people do? Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, first of all, we actually now call the field sport exercise and performance psychology. Oh, okay. Um, the, in America, uh, in American Psych Association's Division 47, which is the one devoted to this, actually changed its name so that we include um, performance in the title. Because actually the largest employer of people with a degree in sports psychology, and and this includes people at the master's level, is the military. Wow, I did not know that. And I mean, the the military is not hiring. It's consulting firms that work with the military um, so that all um, soldiers going out, um, get some training and stuff. And so I can talk a little bit about how all that works. Um, But I got into it because um, sports psychology psychology is actually a pretty old field. If you know the Norman Triplett um, study of social facilitation from like the late 1800s in social psych, that's really pointed to as the first study in sports psychology because it was looking at the effect of the audience on performance. Right and stuff. And um, Coleman Griffiths, who is considered the father of sports psychology, actually had a lab at the University of Illinois. He worked with um, professional football teams um, in the early 1930s, late 1920s. And then when the depression hit, the lab lost funding and closed. So we have sort of a long history. And then there was a while there where nothing really was being done. So we really started more in the research area. Then in the 70s, um, Bruce Ogilvie and some others um, became better well-known. And many of the people who are our first sports psychologists really are coming from clinical counseling backgrounds, mm-hmm. which is sort of how I got into it. When I was um, working at the University of Southwestern Louisiana, a lot of the athletes would come to see, anyone I was at the counseling center for that matter, a lot of the athletes would come to see me because they knew I didn't think they were dumb jocks. Oh. Um, I was a swimmer all of my life. I was never any good, but I swam competitively because um my father was an athlete. He worked his way through high school, college, and grad school on athletic scholarships. All of my brothers and my sister are athletes. Um, two of my brothers um, had um, scholarships, um, or one of them got into the Naval Academy because of wrestling, so it's not really a scholarship, but it was his athletics that got him in. Right. Um, one of my other brothers had a scholarship to Lehigh. Um, my youngest brother has several black belts in um, different martial arts and has wow. gone all around the world doing, I don't know, seminars, whatever they call them. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, and so forth. And so um, the family has always been very athletic. I am not athletic, but um, we were expected to participate in sports and we were expected to go to everything. And we, back then you went to everything that everybody did. It wasn't, you get to stay home and watch television, right? We're going to go. So 
I was around a lot of sports. I knew a lot of athletes. Um, and when the athletes at the university found out that I wasn't going to think that they are dumb jocks just because they're an athlete, um, they started coming to see me at the student center. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm counseling the athletes. And some of it was not like mental health stuff. It really was, it really, if I were going to separate things, it's really more the performance enhancement sort of issues. But because I had the counseling training and a lot of the basic training really is counseling. Yeah. I mean, we look at imagery, we look at goal setting, um, we look at um, anxiety and psyching up, psyching down, controlling your anxiety and your energy levels. A lot of that really is coming out of the counseling clinical areas, in spite of what the sports science people want to say. So when I came to Maryland to get my um, doctorate, uh, my sister was an undergraduate there and she um, was a major in kinesiology and she had a sports psychology class and she was talking about it. So they had graduate level courses. So I decided to take one. She really loved the professor. He was their favorite professor and stuff. So I thought, well, okay, let me give this a shot. So I went and I did my minor over there. Um, And a lot of the sports psych coursework really was a repetition of what I had had in counseling outside of things like the history of sports psychology and some of that. So, um, so I got that training um, and I joined the professional organization. Um, There are two division 47 of APA. And then there's the association for the advancement of applied sports psychology, AASP, ASP, Mm -hmm. as we like to call it. At one point there was another A in there, but um, (laughs) they dropped it because it got too confusing and stuff. And so I would go to conferences. Um, I was working um, with some athletes primarily because my degree is developmental psychology. My focus has always been much more on um, younger athletes, developing athletes, the role of sport in their lives, working with parents, um, which is always really an interesting sort of thing. Um, So I, I was never focused on working solely with elite performers. Right. I mean, right. It's, it's got a nice ring to, oh, I'd love to work with Olympians or yeah. professional things. But frankly, you can't talk about it even if you're doing it because ethically you can't name your clients. Oh, right. That's true. Um, you know, the ethics, the ASP ethics code is built on APA's ethics code. And you cannot, unless you have the permission. And I remember, um, At one conference, one of the um, presenters who's really well known in the field, he's from the sports science area um, and a big researcher, um, talked about he he was doing a research study and it was on figure skaters. He'd got permission from the figure skaters in the study to even just talk about because it's not exceedingly difficult sometimes to identify if you're dealing with elite level athletes, who it is that's involved in the study. So um, that's sort of where that came from. I when ASP um, developed the Certified Mental Performance Consultant um, credential, because there was no credential in the field. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's an interesting field because it is part psychology and part sports science. Um, and you really do have to have both. I, I think if um, someone does not have some kind of competitive experience, and you don't have to be good. I wasn't any right. good. Right. I mean, I was, I was, you don't have to be a professional. In, in that I was sport. not a professional, yeah. but yeah. 
but you have to have that competitive experience because then you sort of understand. I know what it's like to get up at 5 a.m. to go to swim practice. Yeah. So I, I understand um, some of those things. Um, I think it's really hard to get buy-in from any athletes or anybody that you're working with if you don't have some of those, for lack of a better phrase, street cred yeah. Yeah. sort of thing. That makes um, sense. And, and I think um, the people I know who work with um, performance, just performance um, outside of the sport realm, work with businesses. I have worked with boards of directors mm-hmm. um, because they're a group and you're going to have the same issues of group dynamics and learning to get along and everything else. Um, and then um, some work within the medical field. I think it's really hard to, because surgeons are, they're not technically athletes, but if you look at, at the environment where you've got to have the concentration for four hours, you've got to, you know, there are a lot of the skills that you can apply within those realms. And those are actually where you can probably better find jobs. There are a number of people in sports psychology up at the Mayo Clinic who work with surgeons and other. Wow. That's interesting. I would never have thought that. Yeah. So, so we really. I mean, we abbreviate the field of sports psychology and certainly with the Olympics um, on the horizon, that's going to get the bulk of the, ex- the exposure. It got the exposure last summer when the 2020 Summer Olympics were held in 2021. Um, and I think the new dimension, and I started to mention it in the other podcast that has come about yeah. is that um, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, which I love the fact that they've now added in the Paralympic Committee right. instead of holding it totally separate. Yeah. It's all now one organization. It's not in separate. Um, there is a registry of sports psychology providers, which I, I am on. You have to, it's an application process. You have to meet certain credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to apply, you have to, um, and we have to do um, continuing education, mostly based around, um, it's called safe sport. So it's looking at the abuse issues and oh, right. you can figure out where all that's coming from. So we have to yeah. do that kind of training every so often. And it's all online. So it's not like you have to go somewhere. Um, and the registry is available to coaches and national governing bodies at all levels of the sport so that a developmental, an Olympic developmental soccer league that's local could look at the registry and call me to come in and consult. You have to give so many hours a year away free. So, oh, I see. so it's not always going to be a ton of money for doing <laughs> some of these things, um, and stuff, but I'm on the registry, um, and stuff, but, um, about a year ago, they also started a mental health registry. And I think some of the Simone Biles things at, I'm pretty sure that the Larry Nasser um, mm-hmm. situation with the gymnast and the sexual yeah. abuse. And yeah. then also um, Simone Biles, um, really courageous stepping back um, last summer, um, probably hastened it. I'm, and I'm terrible on dates. Um, so they have also created a mental health registry, which is separate so that athletes have access and they do, some athletes get insurance through the USOPC and other things, um, but it gives them a way to access providers around the country because they don't all train in Colorado Springs or, right, right. or La Jolla or up in Lake Placid, um, or which is, are some are, and there's one training center, I think in Alabama. Um, so most of them are training around their homes, gives them access to names that they could feel comfortable with because they're on this registry. So I think even there we're beginning to see more of a, an emphasis on mental health. Um, so people in sports psychology really come at it from two different trainings, from sports science, 
Yeah. A lot of the programs, that's where I took my sport. That's where I took my sports psych courses um, or psychology. Sometimes it's housed in psychology, sometimes in sports science. Um, a lot of the master's programs are sports science. You can get asked certified, which is the CMPC, um, with a degree from a sports science. You do have to take some additional counseling and clinical kinds of courses so that yeah. you have some of that training. My bias is that anybody who is looking at this field really should think about and again, the doctorate's going to get you the furthest. I think you have to have the, the doctorate to be on the sports psych registry and you have to be a CMPC um, because they want to make sure that you're really well called. Is my bias is um, counseling or clinical with minor courses in sports science hmm. so that you get those other kinds of courses because I think um, the counseling clinical skills have served me well no matter what, right. what arena I've been in. It's the same skills. Um, very transferable to many and, environments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when I've had athletes who come with um, a performance enhancement issue, and that's usually what they're bringing. I've always found that with almost all of them, there's some element that's going to kind of swing a little bit into counseling. Now I don't mean they're going into DSM um, right. criteria where I need Just to give them a mental disorder level. But, yeah. But it's like, we used to call them ordinary personal issues to distinguish counseling from clinical yeah. work. We're going to deal with people who have more severe issues. Um, and I always felt that the counseling skills and stuff better equipped me to deal with that. And it also gave me much better referral skills. If I had somebody that I had to refer because I, in my counseling program, and you probably did too, yeah. you learn how to refer when, yeah. when somebody comes in and they're above your pay grade, yeah. Yeah. um, above your skill set, you can refer them. So, um, that's my bias in training. And if you look at the Division 47 website, um, there's information about the different tracks and what you can do. Um, there are more jobs in sports psychology available now. I've seen many more of them being put on the ASP website. Mm -hmm. um, more four-year institutions are hiring sports psychologists. Um, I know that, um, and it's interesting that I believe the NFL has mandated, I, I'm not 100% sure on that, that they have some kind of mental health um, provider on staff. Yeah. Because I have a friend who just, um, well, a few months ago, a colleague who took a job with, with an NFL team. She, she's really, I mean, she's trained in both clinical and sports psychology. She'd been working as a sports psychologist, although where she was and, and the things that were going on really had a lot of clinical counseling under underlying sorts of things yeah. because of things that had been happening there. Um, so I, I think she's, with this team to be more of like a mental health professional, as opposed to performance enhancement person. They may also have performance yeah. enhancement person. So, and then, and then the other little wrinkle is you have a few sport psychiatrists oh. who have gotten in, who have training and have, who've done some training with sports psychology types of things, sports science things, and um, you know, are psychiatrists. So obviously MDs and particularly when they're dealing with things like substance abuse, Oh. because if you need prescriptions, you've got to have a yeah. medical license in order to write those. So the field is evolving. Mm -hmm. um, it is not a field where if you get a degree in it, you're going to walk out and get a job. You're not going to walk out. I like to graduates. You are not going to walk out and get a job with the Baltimore Ravens or the Seattle Seahawks <laughs> or, you know, yeah. any professional team um, to just walk right into that is highly unlikely. Yeah. Um, you got to pay your dues. Right. Um, and, and so how would you guide someone 
who is going through that academic path with the vision of, you know, they're, they're either a former athlete or like, like you, you know, been in athletics, really enjoys the field, want to be in that environment and work with those kinds of clients. Well, I think, I think what, um, I think you have to find a program where they've got a lot of good practicum experiences mm-hmm. so that are, or internships or something so that yeah. within your master's and your doctoral program, they've got it set up so that you're going to be in the athletic department working with the athletes um, so that you actually get some of that experience. That frankly is going to help you when you see jobs um, like with the minor league team or, or something of that sort. They're just not huge numbers of, and, and it's a it's something the field's been wrestling with. They're just not huge numbers of jobs like there are with accounting. You get a degree in accounting, there yeah. are a ton of jobs out there. Yeah, right. Um, there are jobs out there, the number are increasing. Most people sort of have to create their own pathway. Many people are faculty, teach at academic institutions, yeah. and then do consulting on the side because you have a job and a salary and benefits, and then you yeah. can consult on the side. Yeah. Um, some people um, who come from the clinical counseling realm have managed to switch most of their clientele, client base to sports psychology types of things. Most people that I know who are practitioners um, still see clinical clients. And then they also see sports sports psychology clients. And that's another reason why I'm kind of biased toward the clinical counseling, because it gives you a skill. You get licensed. It gives you a skill with which you can earn a living. So your sports psych clients would be a subset of the counseling and clinical clients. Right. So the, are there are there consulting firms or a lot or a lot of folks just working independently? Most are working independently okay. unless and as I mentioned the there are several consulting firms and I I couldn't tell you their names off the top of my head that work primarily with the military and so you're right. working for that consulting firm although your clientele is the military. And so and so that so they are one of the largest employers but it doesn't mean they're hiring tens of thousands every year. Yeah. And so when you go into the field, you have to recognize that a lot of it is making your own way in the field. And if, if you want a job like accounting where it's going to be, and I hate to use the word secure, but it is more secure in some ways. Predictable, maybe. Predictable. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, then sports psychology may not be for you. And I think you also have to recognize that even when you're first starting out, you have to give away a lot of talks doesn't mean you give away. I mean, it comes a point where you have to start charging, but you're going to have to do a lot of kind of free talks and things to get out there and be seen by parents of kids so that then they'll come and hire you to work with their kid because, you know, you go and give a talk to a little league um, organization, the parents and stuff. Now I think there's an age at which it's too young to be working with them, but right. You know, that sort of thing so that they will um, hire you to do, to, you know, so they find you. It's sort of like accountants going out during tax season and talking yeah. about this is what you need to do to prepare for your taxes. So it so, sounds like you really have to hustle a bit. You do. And, and to make a name for yourself by making connections, being yes. creative. You know, you may have dream, dreams of, you know, going to the Dallas Cowboy organization or something like that. <laughs> In your case, Baltimore Ravens. Yeah. But But start maybe at the local high school. Right, neighborhood high school. You know, uh, talk to the baseball coach. Talk right. to you know that kind and, of thing. Right, and it's it's also um, not a field where um, I know that um, 
for instance, um, the, I'm trying to think, the Orioles, Baltimore Orioles, um, have maybe, they have one person who works with their minor league yeah. system. That means like all four teams. Wow. Um, and they have maybe two people working at the major league level. So, so you're wow. also, you're not talking um, the numbers of jobs within professional sports. The U.S. OPC, I, they have, oh, i trying to remember. They may have, they have under 10, I'm, I'm betting, is the number of um, sports psychology professionals on U.S. OPC staff. Now, the different sports will often have a sports psychologist working with, with their particular sport, um, but not all of them do. And track and field tends to be one that has a, has a couple of more, but it's not like there are thousands of positions yeah. out there. There are a lot, you know, one, one place where a lot of people have a lot of clients is amateur golf because golfers right. seem to have yeah. the money to spend yeah. and yeah. want to improve their game. So I do know a number of people who have um, their own independent kind of firm or company or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um, and are, are making a living, but you kind of have to find a niche. And so certainly if you're going to work with golfers, playing golf is a really yeah. good background skill to have. Right. Um, and, so, and that person should be a golfer as well at some yeah, level. That's right? I mean, if yeah, I yeah. should, you know, I, I would have a terrible time working with golfers because you have to understand the game. Well, to be not, able only, to, do you, not yeah. only do you have to understand the game, you have to think it's a really good game. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you have to like, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, so, so, um, well, this is, this is very interesting because, so. yeah, because if someone off the street would ask me what sports psychology was, first of all, I didn't even know the proper name of that right. division, but I would not have guessed that so much of it is the clinical counseling aspect of it. Right. And, so and is, I, is that a misconception, well, common think, misconception? Well, yeah. And I think it's also what it is basically is just like with any of our other applied areas, the principles of psychology applied to sport exercise and performance. So we look at reinforcement, we look at memory, we look at, we look at anxiety and the inverted you and how do we deal with that? Um, and we, we talk about, um, a lot of those kinds of things. Um, I think that, and the goal there is to improve the performance. I just think that, um, although, you know, fairly recently we're seeing more and more the mental health components are becoming more and more important in all sports. Yeah. I mean, not just among Olympians, but in all sports where, um, and it may be that they feel more free to talk about it. And I'm not talking about somebody that's got a disorder, like a DSM disorder that needs more help. I'm just talking about our ordinary sorts of adjustment kinds of dealing with daily life kinds of issues. Um, It may be that now they're more willing to talk about them because I don't think a lot of it is brand new. I think it's just sort of the, the culture where you didn't talk about it. And as athletes begin to talk about more of that, um, it comes to the front. It creates some issues sometimes maybe for the sports psychology team working with people, because you may also have to work with their private psychologist and their private doctor, because if they're on medication, you've got to, you know, and particularly for Olympic athletes, the medication becomes a super big issue because of, I meant to ask about that, right. Whether some drugs drugs are are considered. Oh yeah. yeah, There are are some that are being, there are some where they can get an exception for it. And there's a whole list and I don't know what the list is. I could find it if I really wanted to, but it's, it's not. Is marijuana on that list? 
I have no idea. I, yeah. I suspect it is. Probably, right. Yeah. Um, and so forth. Because for some sports, and, and part of the, and, and one of the big ones is really ADHD medication, because it is a stimulant. Oh, right. Which means it, it can, and, and they, and a lot of times the athletes who quote get caught, it's not because of the drug they're taking, it's because they didn't follow all of the procedures right. for doing that. And the issue of, why um, the U.S. Drug Association and the WADA, which is the World Association of Drug Abuse, I think those, I think that's what it means, but they're the ones that come in and test because a lot of those drugs do give a physiological a, boost. They give a physiological yeah. boost. They give an advantage. We can go back and look at the East Germans back in the seventies, oh, yeah, and stuff. And that's where a lot of it's kind of interesting. A lot of East German coaches moved to coach in China. <laughs> Just making just that fact. observation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not the only one that's made that observation. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting um, when we look at all of those things. Um, and the idea is to make it as level a playing field as we possibly can so that yeah. it is athletic skill, not um, performance enhancement drugs. So, so the PEDs become um, more of an issue um, in recent times. Um, the U.S. OPC does send their teams with the athletes. Um, they embed with the athletes. So, and I've not really looked at where everything is, but I suspect things like skiing and luge um, are not like right down in Beijing Central where figure skating and yeah. other things will be. I suspect they're more like up in kind of like a mountain area. Those sports psychology folks will be up with those teams mm. so that they they do a really good job because um, and they've actually done their work before there. You can't do it when you get there. Yeah. I had one time had a coach call me and say, we've got a swim meet on Thursday. I think this was like Monday. Can you come get us ready for it? I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> you have to perform some magic. <laughs> um, you know, if you want me just to come talk about a couple things, but I, yeah. you know, you, we call them, we call them mental skills for a reason. Any skill yeah. has to be practiced. Right. And when, when they are teaching these skills to athletes, we tell them you need to allow 15 to 20 minutes a day to practice these skills. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about golf and putting basketball and free, free throw shooting, right. you, you have to practice it a lot yeah. and on a very consistent basis. So they become second nature. And with the Olympic athletes and Paralympic athletes and Paralympics will follow the Olympics. I think it's Maybe two weeks after the Olympics. Usually yeah. after, right? Yeah. Well, it is almost always imme after. Almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's usually like about two weeks because they have to get mm -hmm. everything cleaned up and they've got to do yeah. some. But it's um, in the same location, isn't it? Right. It's always usually? in the same location. Yeah. Yeah. They have to do some adjustment, <clears throat> like to dorms and things to um, yeah. sometimes get them ready for um, the Paralympic yeah. athletes. Well, I had a quick question when we were talking about the performance enhancing drug issue. I remember watching the documentary about Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, yeah. right? Yeah, the blood doping. And, yeah, the doping issue. And the the it seemed to be just a well-known fact that almost everybody was doing it, right? I mean, I, I can't say 90%, but you know, a large number of people were doing it. So it's just a matter of not getting caught. So do you do you foresee a time where just like the legalization of drugs in society, do you do you see that it's like everything can go kind of thing? I I think the I think that's less likely with the Olympics because part of the if you look at the Olympic code the Olympic ideals and everything yeah. else it's 
pure sport. And yeah. we know it's not pure sport anymore because we don't use the term. Well, they went amateur. from amateur to professional. So right. we don't, we don't yeah. even use really the word amateur. Yeah. It's, it's actually eligible and ineligible athletes. Oh, interesting. And, and sometimes eligibility is determined by the, the national governing body, the NGB for that particular sport. Um, and so um, it's, um, it's sort of interesting. Um, I'm not sure like that hockey is sending their players to Beijing. I, I read something where they were not going to send a lot of the players that, that hmm. previously they would have sent. Now yeah. that's not going to occur for some of the other athletes from other countries because some of those athletes are going to go play hockey for their country, yeah. no matter what, because right. one thing people have to realize is if we take hockey, which is really a big one for the winter Olympics, all the af- all the hockey players that leave and go play in the Olympics aren't playing for the U.S. Uh, that, yeah, playing, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're playing for whatever their home yeah, country is. Yeah, and stuff. we have so, so many track and field athletes that are household well, train, names. Then yeah, they train here. They train here, and then they go back we to have their better, home country. Right, we yeah. have better training um, facilities. Certainly, we have better training facilities than some of the small islands. And, so, and it was really interesting. If you go back and look, you can probably find information and interviews on YouTube and stuff. Um, with the summer athletes, a lot of the what they did to cope and how they managed to keep training hmm. when we first went into the COVID lockdowns, they didn't have access to their training facilities. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. they could, I mean, because yeah. most of them tend to be universities, or if they're if they were practicing inside, you couldn't go inside buildings and things. Right. Right. So, and, you know, and, and granted that that kind of lockdown was only what two or three weeks or something, but for an athlete planning yeah, for the Olympics, I mean, their training is like so detailed out in terms of exactly what is done day by day and everything else. Now it became fairly clear by probably end of April that the Olympics weren't going to happen in the summer of 2020. Yeah. Um, so, which also creates a little, more of an issue for um, some of those athletes because then they've got to go back and rework. They've got to decide, yeah. am I going to keep doing this for another year, which yeah. is a lot of money for a lot of them. Right. Because and it might training, be an age, age related. Someone might be at their sort of near the end of their peak. Oh yeah. Athletic peak. And, right. And well, and you know, they, so they, they begin peaking for the summer 2020 yeah. games and then it gets put off for a year. Can they like scale down and then, you know, scale back up. So, it, you know, it created a lot of issues. Um, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. I mean, you can't and stuff and it is, you know, and the Beijing Olympics are going to be what they're going to be, you know, and the COVID um, stuff. So um, we'll just have to see um, what happens with that. But I did see a thing this morning, like I mentioned that one of the um, men that Russia was sending for, and, and I don't know if he would have been in metal contention, but he would have been up yeah. there he, he it's not like he'd be down in the 20s he he would be in the top 10 um of skaters which means yeah. they have to replace him so so the other thing that it means is that all of these um athletes who didn't make the teams have to um keep training and stay in peak condition uh, so that they you know so that if somebody they're, they're they, so they can pull them in yeah yeah, yeah, stand yeah, by yeah and stuff but um you know i think it's good i think one really interesting story to come out of us trials with speed skating is the speed skater. I don't know if you've seen this gave Mm -hmm. up one of the spots that she earned to her teammate who really is 
Yeah. Gave it up to Brittany. Um, is really fate, Brittany Bo, was really favored to win, but she did not win the Olympic trials, trials here. Yeah. So, and speed skating goes by speed. Yeah. Some in some sports, the there's a committee or something of the NGB that chooses who goes. Not in speed skating, it's yeah, you win or yeah, yeah, you have to do well in that one event. Or you're in, it doesn't matter if your body of work and where you right. ranked before is a one shot or done. Uh, but I think we had a previous conversation where you mentioned that in, in some sports, it's a, it's they, you, like you said, a committee, a committee chooses. Yeah. So that they can get yeah. the, because as I mentioned before, it's really, and people don't think about this, it's really important in a lot of sports um, to earn the medals or be in the top. Some sports it's seven, some it's 10, because that determines how many spots the U.S. gets in subsequent world games. And then world championships, how many spots you get in the next Olympics. So it's, um, it, it is important because if, if yeah. we could only send um, one. Yeah. Eight, and as a, one as a casual observer of the Olympics, I would have no idea that's going on or yeah. those things are related or, you know, it's a consideration. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's important. I mean, you know, they, and, and the, one of the things U.S. OPC is not getting government money. So I just would like to raise that when we talk about, you know, they yeah. talk about, well, the government's funding all these athletes. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. So where does the funding come from for um, the Olympic athletes? Just the... Themselves, wow. um, sponsors. Yeah, um, all sponsors, most, yeah. most sports will raise some money. The U.S. OPC raises money. And I mean, has money. Yeah. They, may get, they may get some money, but it's not like other countries where... Um, the athletes are really funded by the government. Right. right. In some countries, particularly in some sports, they're in the military, although their military duty is training. Training. <laughs> and we, we saw that um, with the Russians and the Finns and everything else, particularly with hockey. And mm. if you go back to the Miracle on Ice, it like Placid, all of the other teams that were in the top were professional athletes because technically not technically but theoretically because they were all in the military and the job was to train for yeah. the olympics u.s military does have a program whereby they for some sports they identify athletes who are really really good and then they're in special trainings that happens a lot with boxing in some yeah. olympics right. um right. if you listen sometimes they'll say there are u.s um army private or whatever it's oh, not huge numbers but yeah. but there is some that it's good publicity for them and stuff so yeah. you know in that case they're you know they're not having to worry about finding food but for a lot of athletes you know it's it's a lot of self-funding yeah it's a, it's a very much an individual funding. it's an individual endeavor right whereas in other it's, countries it's a state sanctioned yes and, kind of yeah entity yeah. Are you ready to feel some questions from some of my listeners? Yeah, they gave me a long list of questions. So the first one, (laughs) and you haven't seen this in advance. I didn't send them to you, I don't think. Um, But the first question is, uh, you know, it's a very popular theme in sports films to sort of uh, go 110% beyond your limits, that kind of thing. And and sometimes people might get injured as a result. So in that sport psychologist role, you know, in that professional role, how, how, I mean, how, how much truth is there about this sort of theme meme, if you want to call it? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it is Hollywood. Yeah. I think, um, when we talk, um, 
Olympic level athletes and professional level athletes, they are so highly trained. I think we don't realize the ordinary person, how highly trained those athletes are. Now we will occasionally see some professional athletes who slack off and it becomes very clear. They're not doing what they should be doing. But if you watched any of the NFL playoff games last weekend, um, they were all playing um, at the highest level. Um, And, you know, when you say you're giving 110%, I mean, literally you can't give 110%. (laughs) You can only give 100%. And the issue is that athletes are are so well-trained that they know what they need to do. Um, And sometimes they just will give like a little burst of energy at the end or something. And that might push the ball across the the goal line or whatever. Um, But generally, if you're working with athletes as they're going into the game or with the Olympic athletes, as they're getting ready to um, go to the starting blocks, um, you're working with them on, they all have, at least with Olympic athletes, they have pre um, competition routines. So they're going through those things in their head and and they're different ones for different things. So sometimes like in track and field, especially when they're coming up to the blocks and then they're introducing all of them, they practice hearing their name and going, you know, <laughs> or acknowledging the, the yeah. name um, so that um, that becomes part of their routine. Yeah. You see um, that with baseball players a lot when right. they step up to the plate, same thing, right. how they hold the bat, what they do with their feet. Oh yeah. And, there's, yeah, they've scratched their nose. <laughs> Baseball players are so superstitious. Yes, yes. It is just incredibly, and it's very interesting. I've worked with baseball players and it's just like. There's but, so much psychology um, there. It's, and, you know. and I'm like, would you like me to explain where the superstition stuff is coming from? Let me explain why. <laughs> yeah, I tried to back. I mean, with some, yeah. not not a client I'm working with, yeah. just just guys that I know. <laughs> yeah. So so the the question really was addressing also, you know, do athletes push themselves to in order to win, do they push themselves to the point of injury? And I'm, I'm well, assuming they do. Oh, I think, yeah. I think so. I think it happens more in training. Mm. Um, and then not the actual game, not itself. the actual, I mean, I think yeah. certainly injuries are going to happen in the right. actual competition. Yeah. Um, if you're running, um, first of all, physically, they tend to be in such good condition that things that we might do like stretching out to get across, like in a hundred yard dash, stretching yeah. to get across the the end right. point, um, we would pull all kinds of muscles. Yeah, they generally tend to be um, so much better conditioned that that with, is not withstand. likely. Yeah, that is not. I mean, they may be diving because they see they need to try to do that in order to win, right. but they're far less likely to injure themselves doing that. A lot of the injuries that I think you see in um, Olympic level and professional lab athletes um, in professional sports, if it's a team sport, and so you've got two teams going against one another, somebody yeah. steps on somebody's ankle, not on joints, yeah, yeah, um, kind of thing, or um, in some of the running, um, I don't know, how, I could never do like the 3000 or the five, well, I couldn't do it anyway, but the 3000 or the 5000 where they start out across the whole track. And then they all move into that pack right. and they're all bunched up right there. Yeah. If you watch during yeah. the summer or you watch any, any of the track and field on TV and not just Olympics, but any level. And they're in the 3000, the 5,000, they're all bunched up like that. You will see that they will clip somebody behind them or they'll clip mm-hmm. somebody in front of them. Yeah. And, and there's kind of a teetering that goes on. 
um, mentally they have to train for that. Yeah. An interruption of happens. their rhythm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, you know, you just, and it can happen so fast. Um, or sometimes we've seen runners um, get clipped and they go down. Um, now there are some um, procedures by which they can say they should be allowed, you know, for to go through to the next level. Um, it doesn't always happen. And I'm not sure what the percentage is that it happens, but I think the injuries that um, the overtraining injuries tend to happen in training in training. Yeah. You know, and okay. Here's another good know. question. Okay. So a lot of these athletes in their prime, they're probably depending on the sport, maybe mid thirties, you know, that kind of thing, except for Tom Brady. And yeah. so what's the transition like for them when they're retired, whether out of their own choice or maybe due to a, a career ending injury, what's that like for them? I think the career ending injuries are harder for them because it's sudden. It's yeah. the same thing with, with anybody. Like if you all of a sudden get fired from a job, it's harder than if you plan to kind of transition out of the job. Yeah. Um, now most um, like in the Olympics, in the NCAA, they have programs. Um, NCAA calls them life skills where you're, you're getting athletes to think about what's going to happen down the road. Yeah. The, the example I always like to use when I'm teaching is Cal Ripken, um, right. who the baseball clearly, player. clearly had been doing some planning, had um, done some preparation for when he knew that it was time for him to leave baseball because he has an enormously successful um, business life going on. I mean, he speaks in a lot of places, but he built um, a minor league baseball stadium and they play like a lot of um, little league championship kinds of tournaments and things there. He's got some other businesses in the Baltimore area um, and you don't retire from baseball, even though he announced it several months ahead yeah. and athletes of his stature tend to do that so that people yeah. kind of get it in their mind. Um, and um, he clearly had set the wheels in motion so that he was ready to do that. Um, yeah. And I think um, when I, and I have worked with some athletes on, okay, have you thought about what you might want to do when this career is over? Um, you can't wait until it's over. Right. It's the same, it's the same stuff we talk about with people as they're getting closer to retirement age. Yeah. The biggest problem we see with anybody who retires is if you haven't planned for it, and I'm not talking just financial because you do have to plan financially, right. but it's also the other stuff. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, you know, because if, if you retire at 65, theoretically you have 20 years, close oh. to 20 years left to live. And so you have to have some plans. Emmett Smith is another one who clearly planned yeah. for the retirement. And I think we actually have a lot of athletes who are more successful as they retire than I think what we see. And, and we go to that availability heuristic. Yeah. We see the examples that are out of the norm and are the ones who, who blow all of their money on drugs or yeah, whatever, kind of thing, yeah. and, stands out, you know, yeah. end up in, in, you know, homeless on the street. Um, and I think when we look and, and there's an ad that, um, NCAA puts out that talks about the percentage and talks about the number of athletes in the NCAA and talks about um, like 98% are going to go pro in something else. Mm. And so um, I think that the life skills program is, is helping athletes think about that. Um, I think um, if somebody's seeing a, a sports psychologist 
consultant. Um, that consultant at some point is probably going to have said, have you thought about what are you going to do? I know I do yeah. that. Yeah. Is that similar to this other question uh listener had about the post-Olympic depression uh, or whatever that phrase is that, you know, because there's a high whenever the Olympics are going on, then when they're done and there's a four-year gap in between, if, if you're kind of done being an Olympic athlete, is well, that I, kind of similar to an athlete? Well, I'm sure there are some people who have letdowns. Yeah. I mean, you know, with anything, all the super hype and everything else, the reality is, is that most of them just go on with their ordinary athletic lives. I mean, they, you know, they'll take a couple of weeks or whatever off from training and then they go back into it for, because, because there are other big events events right that are coming up, not just um, <laughs> once every four years. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and figure skating, if we look at that, the world championships will, will be a few weeks yeah. after the Olympics. Yeah. Now the Olympic medalists don't always go to that, but sometimes it's just because they're taking off trying to decide what to do. Um, we don't see a lot of Olympic athletes making a ton of money after the Olympics. I mean, there are a few that pick up some sponsorships and, you know, ads and other sorts of things, but by and large, they still have to keep yeah. figuring out a way to earn their living right. Right. and stuff. And so, um, you know, if you go and you really bomb out, um, I'm sure there are some that get a little bit depressed and uh, assuming they would work with someone to, um, you know, say, you know, it was, if you look at something like the luge or bobsled, I mean, you're talking like a minute down this icy chute right. and that, so, so going into it, you've got to get into the mindset that this is not all there is, because if you do that, if that's, if that's your mindset, then, you know, just one like little could yeah. like, you know, because they come out to hundredths of a second yeah. for those yeah. medals. Yeah. And there's not been very many. I think it's interesting that um, we have a female bobsledder. Um, her name is Elena, Alana, um, Alana. And I can't remember her last name. Um, she's going on. She had a child during this last quadrennium, which is what you call the four years in between the quadrennium. Oh. Um, <laughs> I know. I you know, quad, <laughs> yeah. four, four quad, you know. <laughs> Um, I guess summer would have been quincenium, <laughs> but um, the um, she's been in a few ads. Um, Nathan Chen, our top figure skater, has been in a couple of ads. Um, I've been trying. I'm trying to think. Michaela Schiffer, the skier, who is yeah, should win the gold. Um, they tend to already have their sponsors, and they're just gonna continue on. Right. But the vast majority of them, even if Sometimes we've had like gold medal winners who don't get any endorsements, who don't right. get anything. Um, figure skaters will, skiers will. Yeah, you have their high profile sports, the sexy and, sports, and then right. you have the others that and, are you know, fencing, right. you know. And if archery, you win the second yeah. and you win the bronze, and I hate yeah. it when people say they lost the gold. No, you yeah. won silver. Oh my God, you I went know. to the Olympics. You were, you know, so yeah. that drives me crazy. Interesting studies that show that bronze medal winners are more satisfied than silver that's right metal i winner. remember that so, yeah um <laughs> they're because like, hey, you're... i got that I, right. I got third. as opposed yeah. to being like this close to the right well you um, remember what jerry seinfeld said about the silver medal yeah I'm, I'm sure he said it i, I he said that the silver medal is, is the number one loser right right so. and that's and and i don't know whether that's what's gotten it into the lexicon but um we tend to you know they'll talk about well they lost the gold well no they've won the silver because 
frequently yeah. they were not even intended to be on the podium. And so, is, that, is that expectation effect, right? Right. I mean, if and, there's so much hype that you're supposed to be the gold medalist, you're favored. Right. It could be a team sport or individual, right? Like track and field, or it could be the best USA basketball team, for example, right? Anything less than gold is, right. is considered right. a, a loss. Right. And yeah. of course, with things like basketball, they don't practice together very long. Exactly. It's not like when, it's not like when it was collegians and right. they would have them together for camps and things. I mean, our, our basketball team, same thing with, with the hockey, assuming that it's a lot of professional players and not a lot of college players, they may be practicing for a week or two because they're not going to leave the professional game for the length of time you need to have the camps to prepare. So I think that, um, and I'm sure that for some of them, um, it's a letdown, but I think most athletes, and I mean, I don't know this for sure. This is just my sense of it they have a good sense of how they fit into their sport because yeah. this is not the only time they've competed against these same people. They yeah. compete against these same people over and over and over throughout the four years. Yeah. And in all of the, the, because they're, they're just a ton of events for things like bobsled, luge, figure skating, um, the sports that are not like professional sports here in the States. Right. Um, and so they, um, are competing against it and i think most of them have a pretty good sense of where they stand now does that mean that you couldn't win? i think in sports that are judged you probably can't because yeah. there's a lot of bias and particularly with international judges and so forth that i don't want to say come in with preconceived ideas but we don't send um skaters um gymnasts who haven't competed at least a certain amount at the international level because they have no international street cred right. with the judges. And so um, it automatically means that the U S has far less chance to win because those are individually judged sports. Yeah. If it's a timed sport, it's a yeah. little bit different, but again, the, the likelihood, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen and, and it can be very exciting when a dark horse or somebody who yeah. should never win, should never have won wins. Um, but by and large, it tends to be within a realm of a few expected winners. Right. I mean, it just, you know, because. Yeah. Like track and field, you have these time trials, you kind of know who, who are the best top and, five. And, yeah. And there's some countries who send athletes, um, in the various sports and they actually know that they're not going to get anywhere near the medal podium, but for them, it's. The participation and you can watch that a lot of times in the in the march on when they do the opening ceremony mm -hmm. yeah um and you know it's like they're there which i would be happy with um but they know they're not gonna win and some of them when there are preliminary heats and if you don't get certain scores in those heats you're not even going to the next heat they'll be out after one yeah run one trial yeah. So it's, it's looking at the Olympics as really kind of this, almost a two tier system of you've got the participants and then you've got the, the expected medal winners. Right. Um, and so those forth. that are just happy to be there right. yeah. representing and, their country. And, and oh. certainly they're still like enormously talented, well-trained, good athletes. Yeah. I mean, there's far beyond any ordinary kind of athlete, but there, there are still levels within the world yeah. of elite athletes and yeah. um, just, it is what it is. So I think that for some athletes, there may be um, 
some letdown. Um, I think this, with no spectators, with none of the other hoopla that tends to go around, there may be some kind of letdown because it's not the Olympic experience you thought. But if you listen to a lot of the athletes from the summer, they said that, but they also said we got a lot of support from home and we got to go, you know, yeah. because I mean, they're training for all this time. Yeah. And then if it's just canceled for some of them, they can't keep training for four years because of funds, because of life, because of, yeah. you know, I think it's so difficult to empathize or, or understand the kind of pressure they're under in that kind of event. It's really just well, really difficult to, to just sort of put ourselves in right. of what they're, they're, right. they're expect, especially those who are expected to win. Right. And, and for some, you've, and you look at some of the nations like Russia and some of the others, those expectations are more than like, well, we expect to see Nathan Chin win the gold. Yeah. You know, if, if he doesn't, I think a lot of people would be disappointed, him included, but he's also a student at Harvard and he's got a plan B as we talked about the other day. So it's yeah. not, I, I don't think, and he also, I saw him on some interview thing. He plays the piano like beautifully. I mean, yeah. like, concert style kind of piece. Yeah. So he's got other, and, and just from having listened to him talk, he's got some other things in his life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure he would be enormously disappointed. He was when he finished um, out of the medals um, four years ago, but it didn't destroy him. For some athletes, it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, but there were, there were times when if the communist athlete didn't win, <laughs> sent to the gulag oh, sort of wow. thing yeah. so so there's some countries where there's still that more much more pressure than here in the states yeah. here we tend to get sort of like hero worship celebrity worship kind of thing yeah. and i think that's where also a good sports psychologist comes in with keeping people away from some of that and helping people um keep their focus on what you know controlling what you can control and not worrying about what you can't control Right. And that's where I think particularly for Beijing, they've had to do a lot of preparation because they don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, you don't know exactly how the, I mean, they can tell you exactly how the testing is going to occur, but that's not exactly the same thing as being there and having to go through it. And, yeah. you know, and, and as we all know, you've have the pandemic has caused everybody to shift things from how they thought they were going to do it. So, yeah. Just a couple more minutes before we wrap up of what's it like working one-on-one -on -one with an athlete? How many sessions on average, that kind of thing? And how much time before someone sees, an athlete sees the benefit from working with a professional? Right. It's, I think it depends. Some sort of have sports psychologists that they see on a weekly, a bi-weekly basis. And it's sort of like just having a counselor or yeah. therapist that you see on an ongoing basis. Um, I think it depends on what issue they bring to you. It depends on how willing they are to practice and do homework because some things yeah. they've got to go and you've got to practice doing it a certain way. It's not going to change the next day because you've got to get into the new rhythm. Um, you've got to set new up habits. Your, Right. right. And so that, yeah. it's not going to be instantaneous. There probably are times when they backslide. Um, and, you know, so you kind of have to go for, I, I call them checkups, you know, just like you go for a, do a medical doctor checkup, you've got to go yeah. check in and keep things going. Um, 
So it's just like seeing any kind of client. It depends on how willing, and sometimes they know what the issue is, um, but they're not necessarily willing to change. Mm. You know, I mean, we we all run into yeah, they're you know, people. So right. they're they're these are the you people know, and, issues, yeah, person and, issues. You know, and sometimes I think if they have um, been the best athlete, which most of them have, all of a sudden they're not the best athlete. Um, you know, and like with minor league baseball players, for instance, their, their life is not their own. They're told what to do, where to go, when to be, what, to, and, you know, they just can be let go like that. And, um, one year I had, well, I wasn't working with him. because He had flown in on, and his, he was staying with a host family and they dropped him at the ballpark and he went in to tell the manager I'm here. And they said, You've been released, and so we had to go out and call oh. the host family to come pick him up and take him back to the airport. Oh, so, no. yeah, I mean, you know, so it's 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 sometimes it's in certain situations it's learning to deal with the fact that you have limited control, so you have to focus on what can I control. Yeah. So it's you know, and stuff, and that I would bet is a big focus of or has been. I mean, at this point, it's. At this point, the preparation is done. It's done, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's two weeks away. It starts February third. At this point, you you can't do anything but just keep reinforcing what you've been doing and reminding of of what's going on. I think the other thing is they have sports psychology professionals there in case something happens. Um, you know, there's situations where athletes had a family member die back in the states, and um, you know, there've been a couple yeah. of situations where there've been some pretty bad accidents. Um, skiing, luge, bobsled sort of thing. And so they're there. I don't want to call it grief counseling, but helping athletes to compartmentalize that um, and deal with it when it's time to deal with it. Because, I mean, you can't fully deal with it and focus on a sport that requires you to really have your focus. I mean, you know, skiing, luge, bobsled, um, figure skating, all those kind of things, you have to have narrow narrow focus while while the race is going on or right. or the events going on or you could be in really deep trouble you can't afford a microsecond of distraction right yeah you and stuff be and so, so there, learning yeah. to compartmentalize some of that which for some of the athletes it may help not having anybody there because there's nobody to call you know yeah fewer distractions right so it's you know it's it's an individual thing and i i would bet i mean i can't say for sure but you know, if you're going to frame things, you might frame it in that way that maybe not having all these spectators and other people there will help us not be so distracted. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I would, if I were working with an athlete, let's look at what are the positives of this? Just like we've all tried throughout the pandemic to say, okay, what are the positives? Okay. we got to spend more time with family. We got right. to do, you right. know, we talk about how we frame things and sometimes you have to really focus on that because um, how we view it. And we know that how you think about it can have an effect on your mood and all kinds of other things. Right. Yeah. So the cognitive that's psychology. Yeah. That's psychology. Basic right psychology. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's, it's just applying it in a different realm. And again, athletes are all individuals and it's applying it differently with each other. They're different ages. I mean, we had um, like snowboarders and stuff as young as 15 or 16. And you're going to deal with them differently. than somebody has been doing this for 10 years and it, their yeah. mid twenties or thirty or something. Right. So right. it's it's you know, got to know developmental psychology. So. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you very much for your time, oh, you're quite Dr. Welcome. Diane Finley. I think this is a good point to wrap up. 
Uh, you're so generous with your time. I really oh, appreciate good. it. Um, so along with our earlier segment, I think we covered so much that hopefully will be beneficial. I've certainly learned a ton, uh, not just with today's segment of sports psychology, but also sport psychology, but also mm-hmm. with uh, uh, just the other issues we discussed as well in, in terms oh, of- uh, I've enjoyed it. I'd love yeah. to just talk psychology. Who doesn't? <laughs> I know, this is fun. So <laughs> I appreciate your time okay. and hopefully we'll have you on again if you want okay, you know, to come back. Okay. Let me know. Thanks. Okay. So, oh, by the way, before you go, so how, how would a casual listener find you if they have questions for you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's okay. um, D capital D small R capital F capital O um, and L-I, Dr. F online. Dr. F online. Yeah. And the yeah. D F and O, I don't know if it matters. I'm not sure if it does, but I will include but your I Twitter cap- handle. I capitalize yeah. those when I set up the handle, like Kazillion yeah. years ago when Twitter was first starting. Yeah. And then I didn't really use it. But during the pandemic, I got <laughs> asked because of the online teaching to come back in and make some comments. Yeah. So at least I had it. Thank goodness. Um, so I don't know whether the the capitalization is important or not. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm guessing not. I think it's just the actual handle yeah. itself. Yeah. Coming from a strong English background, I always think capitals <laughs> matter. <laughs> But maybe not. You know, I, right. I mean, I love E.E. E. Cummings. And if you don't know who that is, go look up the poet E.E. E. Cummings. Mm. Uh, small e, small e, small c. Everything is small, lowercase. Um, but um, he, he was very popular many years ago. Well, not many years ago. But, um, you know, it's it's like I have to resist the urge to correct signs and things when I see that things are misspelled. You know, I, I yeah. don't want to, <laughs> I've been known to go up in a grocery store and tell them, you know, you've got this sign up and it's misspelled, so you might want to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we see that a lot too. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, you know, it's my okay. mission. All right. Well, thank you very much. Sure. And, uh, and also I will add in the description or, or what they call show notes, uh, right. different links to the field, uh, okay. the APA links. And you, you provided me some other ones for right. those who are interested in this particular field of psychology, they can learn more about it. Right. And ASP will have a whole number of, um, I guess, news spots. I don't know what you mm-hmm. want to call them that they'll put out during the Olympics, um, oh, for general okay. public. Um, they have a number of things there for all kinds of for parents, for amateur, yeah. you know, for, um, but I know that in the, the last Olympics, they, they have some people who write some things to kind of connect it in and show how some of this stuff is playing out yeah. in the Olympics. So yeah. I'm assuming they're doing it again. Yeah. I mean, we good. have a public, Sounds... public relations committee. So I assume they're doing it. Yeah. So I hope when the viewers are watching this Olympics coming up, they had a whole new set of appreciation for what an athlete has to go through to endure and uh, yeah you can watch them warming up on the sidelines you can see them doing this sort of thing when they're going through their imagery and stuff it's really um you can you can pick it up if you watch not just the event right but the the stuff around the event yeah yeah what they do before maybe after yeah they're they're little rituals yeah okay all right thanks again okay see ya yeah i'll see you soon okay okay bye Bye bye-bye Our podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, friends, maintaining our mental health is not easy. And the good news is that therapy does work. And what is therapy? It's really whatever you choose it to be. It can help you with your motivation. Maybe you're feeling stuck and you need some extra tools 
to help get you unstuck. Maybe you're feeling insecure in a relationship or having issues at work or just dealing with daily stress. So whatever it is you need, it's important to overcome that sense of shame about getting help because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So, join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself and your mental health. So, I have a special offer for our Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash psychexplained. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast.